If you have a Bible, open it with me to the Gospel according to John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Before we actually get into the text, I want to do a little bit of background on the Gospel of John. It is the fourth Gospel. The, the other three are called Synoptic Gospels. Uh, John is largely unique. The, synopt- the word synoptic, synoptic simply means summary. They, they're summaries, and there's a lot of overlap with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Matthew being primarily, behold your king. It was written with the Jew in mind. Uh, that's why Matthew so often in his gospel says that it may be fulfilled. Because the Jews were looking for Messiah, and they missed Messiah. When Jesus came over the brow of the hill and he looked out over the city, when he came in, For that last week of his life, the triumphal entry was just ahead of him, we call that. Uh, He wept over the city and he actually prophesied against her because they had missed the day of their visitation. Well, here now in John's life, John is probably 90, 95 years old. It's way out towards the end of the first century. And so John is here. He's teaching and he's reaching a large group that was largely not Jewish. So Matthew was initially and essentially with a Jew in mind. Of course, it's everyone benefits. Don't get me wrong. It's not just for Jews. But that's the slant. It was, behold, your king, Jesus being the king of the Jews that they had missed because their expectation of the king was far different than what Jesus actually came to accomplish when he accomplished the work of redemption on your behalf and mine. So we go from there to the gospel according to Luke, and Luke is essentially, behold, the man. I'm sorry, I went to I skipped Mark. Um, we go to the Gospel of Mark, and just going in order, and it's behold the servant, and that is written essentially. Luke is or Mark is written with, with the Roman mindset or the Roman in mind, and the Romans were a, a very highly structured society, and you can see the structure in Mark. It's a very fast-paced gospel. He hits the ground running. He goes all the way through. It's a short the shortest of the four Gospels. But again, it's a synoptic. It's, it's a summary of Jesus's life. And uh, these four Gospels actually form a composite image of uh, what it is to see Jesus in his fullness as much as he has revealed himself to us. And, and we see here in the, in the Gospel of John that he says that Jesus did many more things other than this, but, and the, whole, the books in the world couldn't contain it. So we get a, a sort of a, a, a vignette of the person in the work of Jesus, and he has given us enough. It's a fabulous gospel. Well, so we go from there to the Gospel of Luke, and it's, Behold the man, Jesus in his humanity. We see in the Bible that Jesus refers to himself, and he's referred to as the Son of Man. That's a reference to the fact, and we'll see that in the text here this morning, that Jesus was 100% man. That God would actually take on a human body. It's the most amazing event in human history that God, the creator of all that is, I was reading the other day, the universe is 13 point something billion light years across. Okay, think about that. You don't have to be a science expert to to get that. But 13.3 or 7, I don't remember what it was, billion years at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. The universe is that big and that he holds it all in the span of his hand. Do we serve a big God? Yeah, we do. And yet he intimately cares about the daily details of your life and mine. 
What an amazing thing that he would create all of that and then come and take the form of a man and visit his creation. Come into his creation and actually allow himself to be beaten and tortured and murdered so that we could have life. We'll get into that more as we go along. So we have Matthew, behold your king. We have Mark, behold your servant. We have Luke, behold the man. And John finally is, behold your God. Because we see from the very opening words of this gospel that John is, he doesn't, the other three gospels, they sort of start out with John the Baptist and then they work their way forward to Jesus. John doesn't do that. He gets to John the Baptist pretty quickly, but John goes all the way back on purpose to Genesis 1.1. The first three words of this gospel are identical to the first three words of our Bible. In the beginning. And we'll talk about that as we go here because there's some just some fascinating things in the text about that. So we see that John is unique. It is a unique gospel. It is a unique account. And it uh, doesn't discount the other three because, well, those of you that are parents or grandparents, uh, if you've ever taken your little ones down to, you know, to Sears or whatever to get photos taken, I love the way they do that, don't you? Like you go down there and it's like, I'm going to spend 22 bucks on pictures and that's it. And then you get down there and they have this beautiful array of all of these different views of that precious child. And they say, well, that's fine. If you don't want them, we'll just throw them away. Yeah. It's like, yeah, right. You're not going to throw those away. That's my kid, you know. And so we end up walking out of there $200 lighter. <laughs> and it's worse if you're a grandparent. But the point is, is that I want to have every view of that child that's available to me. And it's sort of the same thing when we look at these Gospels, that we want to be able to see and experience every view of Jesus that we can. And so God, as he anointed these men to write these Gospels, he anointed them to write from the mindset which they were writing from and giving us, therefore, a composite image of Jesus, the King, the Servant, the Man, as God. Beautiful the way that God has orchestrated and laid this out. So one of the things that's true is John, he, the, the first 18 verses. Now, uh, when it says the eternal word, John 1 through 18, let me tell you about that for a minute. Okay, That's a goal. <laughs> that's, that's not necessarily how far we're going to get. Because my goal is that we'll go through the whole prologue to the gospel. That's called, this is the prologue. It's the, begin, the introductory statements that John writes as he begins now to, to get into the text, into the things he wants to share about Jesus. There's a prologue. There's, these are introductory comments, the first 18 verses. And in those verses, he really does. He tags the whole book. So that doesn't mean you can't, that you are off the hook for coming for the rest of the studies. But the point is that he wants to be able to reveal these things that he summarizes here in the very beginning of the gospel. And that as he goes, that's the prologue. It's, it's the beginning. I have this down. And when we go verse by verse, expositional, exegetical teaching which is, I love expository teaching, it's what I like to do more. This is actually the first time in Newburgh that I've begun to do an expository study because when you're a visiting guest, you generally do topical studies. And uh, 
I like just going plodding through. And I know you folks are accustomed to that, so that's good. And we, we take it and we go through a book of the Bible. We go through verse by verse, line upon line. We take the good stuff and the hard stuff. Because there's good stuff and hard stuff in there. Some of these things are convicting as we look at them. And the Holy Spirit may convict me about something that he's not working with you on. That's fine. Something that you'll hear me say probably often is don't worry about the person sitting next to you, even if they're your spouse. There's a lot of you laughing. (laughs) But do business with him personally, individually. That's his will. I do not know what God's will for my wife is. You're shocked. So is my wife. No, but seriously, I mean, it, I, I don't concern myself with how, primarily with how he's dealing in her heart. And of course, we talk and we visit and we share the things that God's doing. Don't get me wrong. But truly, it's an individual relationship. Very often, I will never forget, and, and I don't know, I've, I've shared this a few times before. This really drove this home to me. I was at a men's camp out uh, one year, uh, just a few years ago, and there was a 250 or 300 men. It was a multi-church camp out. First year I went, second year I was teaching at it, but the first year I was like brand new, didn't know anybody, and was like, Wow, this is a great group of guys. And we had just gotten started on Friday afternoon. And uh, the the pastor of the, the, there was a large Calvary chapel that was involved in overseeing the whole thing. And great guy and uh, and a good friend, became a good friend after that. Uh, But anyway, he got up and started talking. And this guy said, hey, wait, preacher, can I say something? And he said, well, yeah, sure, go ahead. He didn't even know his name. And the guy said, I just want to tell you guys, stop getting on me about smoking cigarettes. And I just hung my head and I thought, oh, Lord, who's being condemning towards him for that? And he said, I want to tell you something. You know, I, I go outside of the camp to smoke. And I was thinking, Israel is like, wow, that'd be a long ways. If it was back then. But that was just my warped brain just kind of translating things. But he said, I go outside and I'm very respectful and, you know, and you guys stop getting on me about that because somebody evidently was really bugging him about that. It wasn't their business. And I thought, well, Lord, you know, that's your timing. And he went on to say something. I almost began to weep. I mean, I literally got teared up. He said, let me tell you what God's doing in my life. And the place grew very quiet. He said, God has delivered me from heroin addiction. And he's given me back my wife and my children. So stop getting on me about smoking cigarettes. And I never forgot that, gang, because it's easy for us to look at the externals. It's easy for us to to size people up when we have no clue what God is doing on the inside. And we want to be yielded to his sanctifying his work in our lives because he's teaching us day by day to think and act more like Jesus. And this guy was in the middle of a major work of God in his life and somebody's picking on him about this little peripheral thing over here. Don't do it. Be centered and and seek the Lord on what he wants to do with you. Uh, That's free. That wasn't part of my notes. But, you know, it's true. It's really true. We want to be yielded to his work in our lives. 
and to have grace for others. It's the only way this thing works. Because if we don't have grace for each other, we're going to end up picking at each other. We're going to end up scrapping about silly things. And we're going to end up out of God's will. Straight up. That's a fast track out of God's will. You will think you're right. And you're wrong. For what it's worth. Back to my notes. So John's an old guy when he writes this. It's towards the end of the first century. And at the beginning of the first century, because... Christianity in its origins was largely Jewish because Jesus was Jewish and the appeal was to the Jewish people. I mean, that was where most of the converts came from at the beginning of this whole movement that the book of Acts calls the way. And and as time went on and the gospel exploded over the then known world through what's called the diaspora, the the dispersion and and other things. I mean, the Romans thought, well, these Christians, they're getting too powerful. Let's spread them out. (laughs) That was a bad move for them. Great move for the church because the church exploded. And Paul, uh, the apostle, being commissioned to go out, to go all over Asia Minor and uh, on into Southern Europe to be able to bring the gospel to them with his three missionary journeys. If you've been a Christian for a while, you're aware of those. You know about those. But the point is, is that John's audience was largely Gentiles. And a Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. Okay, so you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile in God's economy. And we are Gentiles, unless you have Jewish heritage, then you're Messianic Jew, and that's fine. But the point is, is that the people, they wouldn't understand, they wouldn't be plugging into the concepts as much that, like Matthew put forward, because they don't have a Jewish mindset. And so John begins this, and he's appealing to the Gentile mind. And the way that the, the, the whole thing is structured really points to that. It's not just for the Gentile mind. I mean, again, the gospel is universal in its application, both to people and to mindsets and all of that. And it's not, it's not hard. I mean, we could get very deep into theological, you know, uh, concepts and, and, and theories and all of that. But the bottom line is, is the gospel is very simple. And it's, it's simply... For God so loved the world, as we see in chapter 3, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe on him, simply believe, simple faith, wouldn't die, but would have everlasting life, that would live forever. And over and over and over again in this gospel, John challenges us on that. Do you believe? Because we're not talking about Oh, I believe in my God. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, well, my God wouldn't do that. Oh, great. You just put God in subjection to your thoughts. Not a good idea. But truly, what God wants to do is to reveal himself in fresh new ways. Even if you've been through this gospel uh, 20 times, and I've been through it at least that many times over the last 35 years. He wants to reveal himself in fresh ways. He wants to... Have you, have you noticed that? You seasoned Christians out there. When you go and you reread a book that you've already studied, how often does God speak something brand new to your heart? How often do you dust that thing off and go, wow, I never saw that before? That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you because the Holy Spirit's ministry, we'll see here in this gospel... He has a threefold ministry. He is here to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin because they don't believe in me. And righteousness because I go to the Father and judgment because the God of this world has been judged. That's what Jesus gives us, his own interpretation of what he says. The second thing is, is he will guide you into all truth. 
the Holy Spirit is the revealer of truth in the hearts and minds of every believer. It's not, I read it and I got this great idea. I think I got a great idea about it. But the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside, who is within us and gives us the, the ability to interpret these things, to actually be able to understand the things of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 is very clear on that. He says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. It's a mystery which if, if, if the rulers of this world had understood it, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. But Jesus in Luke chapter 8 says to you, as he gives the parable of the sower, it's been given to know and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. It's not a mystery because it's not knowable. It's a mystery because it's appropriated by faith, by believing. That word that's used over 70 times in this gospel that you believe. We see it here when he hits the ground in chapter 1. So the purpose of this, this gospel, John tells why he's writing this. Uh, he shows us why at the very beginning in this prologue, but he also shows and tells why. Uh, if, you're, if you've got your hand in John chapter 1, turn to John chapter 20. John 20. John very plainly reveals why he's writing this. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. They're written that we may believe. And that as believers, that our faith would increase. And that, that being the case, that we have life in his name. And we'll talk about the life that he brings in a bit, if I don't run out of time. Back to chapter 1. There's a, sort of an outline of this gospel. There's a couple of things that we see that John focuses on as he goes through, as he writes this, as he lays it out. Again, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, uh, I love what Peter says, that men didn't just come up with these ideas, that they were moved by the Holy Spirit to write down the things that God had given them. And so truly, John is the writer, but the Spirit of God himself is the author. And it revolves around seven miracles and seven I am statements. You can see that here in number three. The miracles, changing water into wine, the very first miracle that Jesus did, changing water into wine uh, in chapter two. Uh, he healed the royal official's son in Capernaum uh, in John chapter four. He healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, in chapter 5. He fed the 5,000 in chapter 6. He walked on water that night after he sent the crowd home. Oh, I would love to launch into that, but we'll get there. Uh, on his way to uh, Capernaum, where the next day in chapter 6, he would stand up and say, if you want anything to do with me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And to a Jewish mind, that was not a good thing to say. Everybody left to the point where he looked at his disciples and said, are you going to leave too? And Peter had those famous words, well, where would we go, Lord? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. He healed the, blind, the guy that was blind from birth in chapter 9 and raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Those are the seven miracles that John focuses on here. And there are certain things about each one of those that we'll dig out and that we'll unpack as we go. There are also seven I am statements and where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, I am being the covenant name of God, of Jehovah, of Yahweh, 
back in Exodus chapter 3, when God was commissioning Moses there in the burning bush and saying, I'm going to use you, Moses, to deliver my people, Israel, from the hands of the Egyptians. And as such, and Moses, of course, he was instantly aware of his own insufficiencies to carry out the ministry that God was giving him. And uh, believe me, there that is something that everyone who serves the Lord deals with because it's not about us. It's about him using us. And again, we'll get into that. But there's Moses at the burning bush and he says, well, who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? And God said, you tell him that I am is sending you. Implied there is fill in the blank, gang. It, I am. And he, God goes on in the Old Testament to reveal his covenant name in different ways to the people. I am the Lord, your healer, Yahweh Rapha. I am the Lord, your provider, Yahweh Jireh. I think it's Jireh as a provider. I am the Lord, your banner. I am the Lord. And he, he gives these different names that describe a part of who he is and what he's about. And they reveal the person of God to the people in the Old Testament every bit as much as the I am sayings in the Gospel of John reveal the person of Jesus to us. Fabulous stuff. In verse, or in uh, uh, chapter 10, he says, I'm, or in, I'm sorry, in chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. He says, I'm the light of the world in chapter 8. I'm the door in chapter 10. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the, re- not I have a doctrine, but I am the resurrection and the life. And you see that in these, Jesus is not talking about something he possesses. He's talking about something, something that he is. Vast difference. Vast difference. And we'll talk about that too. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. And I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser in chapter 15. A couple of other I am sayings in there. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, I, before Abraham was... I am, speaking of his pre-existence, of his being around, and we'll look at that in chapter 1 here, before everything got started, before God created, Jesus existed. And, and then also the last time he says, I am, is when the guys come in the garden and they say, uh, they come to arrest him. Judas betrays him with a kiss. You know the story. And, um, excuse me. So Judas betrays him with a kiss and the soldiers come and, and he said, Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And if you look in the text there in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18, Jesus says, I am he. But if you have a halfway decent translation of the Bible, you'll see that he is in italics. That means it was added for clarification by translators. Truly what Jesus said is, I am. And what happened? Everybody fell over. The whole Roman garrison was knocked on their keisters. What's the Greek word for that? Anyway. (laughs) But he knocked them over. Essentially, he was saying, you came to arrest me here. This has to happen. My hour has come. It's time for me to drink the cup. He knew what they were doing, and he was demonstrating that he was not being taken by compulsion. He was going voluntarily. Because with a word, he could knock that whole garrison over. With a word, he could have just snuffed out their lives. But he had finished praying in the garden, saying, if there's any other way, Father, take this cup. But he knew there wasn't. He had to go to the cross. Why? To accomplish the act of redemption for you and for me. You know, if you look at the Bible as a whole, 
And, and I encourage you, look at the Bible as a whole. Don't look at it as a con- collection of religious snippets. Not good. It's good to look at each book as a whole. It's good to look at the Bible as a whole. The Bible is not about, I mean, yeah, sure, we learn things about Christian living in the New Testament, but it's not about us. It's about him. And it's about his act of redemption, his work of redemption. It's redemptive history. You look in the first pages of Genesis there, uh, you see the creation, that's a, a page or two. You see then the fall, that's another page or two. And virtually the rest of the Bible, all the way out to Revelation chapter 19, is God's work of redemption. The whole thing. And in chapter 19, he recreates. You can see there a mirror of the original creation as he recreates now, and it's glorious. But it's after he's done this entire deal. So how much work is God, how far is God willing to go to purchase my soul, to purchase your soul? Wonderful truths. So we have these seven miracles, these seven I am statements, and we'll look at those in detail as we go along. Well, let's now, let's go ahead and get started in chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll read the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has, made, that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We see in verse 1, in the beginning, again, John hearkening back to the first pages of Genesis, in the beginning, the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was over the face of the waters. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Who is this word? We know, I mean, we see the end from the beginning. We know he's talking about Jesus, but why would he characterize him as the word? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And to the Greek mind, the word, the, the word word, logos, uh, it, it would convey that there's an idea, there's a thought, not just the written word. And, and what John is starting out with here is, in the beginning, there was... A thought, but there's also a thinker that predates the thought. In other words, he's not saying in the beginning Jesus had a beginning. He's saying at the beginning Jesus was there. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now there's two things about that. He says the Word was with God, so the Word is face to face with God, and the Word is God. So we see Jesus as with God and God. And we, you know, how do you explain that, gang? How do you do that? I mean, he says, I mean, this is very straight Trinitarian theology here. This is, he is launching right into describing, defining as much as we can understand the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And, and if you want to have a proper understanding of that, you've got to realize that God is manifest in three persons, through the Father, through the Son, through the Spirit, one essence, essentially one God, okay? So what he's saying here is Jesus is with God, and you could look at that as he's with the Father, but he is God because he is part of the Trinity. And so way back before his incarnation, 
there was Jesus. When, and, and we see here, he says, he was in the beginning of verse 2 with God, and all things were made through him. And without, without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, he directly links in the beginning with the creation here. So he's talking about Jesus existing in his pre-incarnate state in the beginning. The other Gospels don't do this. They go right into John the Baptist or the, the genealogies and uh, all of that. Uh, John is very distinct in the way that he launches into his Gospel because he wants people to know. Uh, and there was a prevalent thought in the first century uh, in Jesus' day. There were, John had a large, John the Baptist had a large following. He had a huge following. And there were a lot of people that thought that John was actually higher than Jesus. That's why John said, no, 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 no. You've got to understand, I'm below him. He existed before I ever came into being. And we see that further in the text here. But there was a following there. And John wants to be sure that we understand that this isn't about John the Baptist, that Jesus predates and is higher than, is, is infinitely more than John the Baptist, who was the forerunner for him. Um, sort of addressing the first Baptist church, I guess. I don't know. But the point is, he, he wanted to be sure that people see that this whole thing is about Jesus. And, and we talk about in Christian circles that you know, it's God's will. I mean, I love Romans 8.29 or 8.28. He, he causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. But, and we stop there often because we're, you know, we're stumped about something. And that's not, that's not a bad thing. But go on to verse 29 where he tells us what that purpose is. He says, because those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And what that means for you and I is that it's God's will to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Because a lot of times we look at it backwards. We see that, well, there's the father and then there's the son. And we sort of do this, the father and the son. That's not so with the Trinity. They're co-equal. And so being co-equal, we see here, and let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1, if you have a minute. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high." So here in Hebrews chapter 1, we see sort of a parallel passage to John chapter 1, because what's happening here is the writer, and we don't know who the writer of the Hebrews was. I think it was Apostle Paul, but I'm not going to say that out loud. Um, <laughs> personal opinion. Try to avoid those. But, um, and a lot of people think that. But anyway, he says that, that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that there was this pieces and parts thing about how God revealed himself to the people. He would give this prophet this portion and that prophet that portion and he would reveal himself in that way to these people through the prophets and so on and, and to the fathers. And what he's saying though is that in these last days the full and final revelation complete revelation of God is through Jesus. Period. End of story. 
he'll go into that in, in Hebrews, and we're not, I would love to teach that. I've, I've taught that before in Thailand a couple times. But in Hebrews, he goes in, he, it's a book of contrast. He says, look at this in the Old Covenant. Now Jesus is better. Now look at this. Now Jesus is better. Now look at that. Now Jesus is better. And a great book. But for the purposes that we have this morning, just seeing that here's Jesus present at creation, the same thing's being said by another writer here. This isn't the Apostle John. But he says that in these last days is spoken to us by his son. The word his again is in italics there, by son. And so he's talking about position, title, authority. He's not talking about necessarily pedigree. So by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds. And very often when you see the world, the word world there, it's cosmos. And here it's not, it's anon. And what it means is the ages. That through Jesus, God created the ages who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person or nature, he upholds all things by the word of his power. So when he talks about the brightness of his glory, the New American Standard renders that the radiance of his glory. He's saying, if you want to get to know God, Jesus is the outshining of his glory. He's the express image of his nature. In other words, he's a chip off of the old block. And so as such... We need to get away from this. Here's the father, here's the son, because really what it is is people had a limited understanding of God until Jesus came. It was very limited in the sense that it was enough for the Old Testament saints because they looked forward to Messiah, but their actual understanding of God himself was limited. And when Jesus came, he fully revealed the father to us, at least in as much as we're able to comprehend, because we're talking about eternal things here. And again, when we look at eternity, that I mean, I call it popping circuit breakers because we're finite beings. Yeah, I can think of finite things, but I cannot jump to infinite things. I don't, we don't have the capacity. Our brains literally don't have the capacity to think in infinite terms. Eternity is not a whole bunch of days. That's what my mind wants to think. But God doesn't measure eternity by this little chunk of rock spinning around in circles that we're on. When the universe is as vast as it is, I mean, he owns time. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees the whole span of time in front of him. I don't get that. I can't think that way. Our thinking is linear. His is not. That's why he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not, they're beyond your finding out. You literally can't get parts of who God is, and we won't until we're with him. And he begins to reveal himself in ways that we now are wired for, because we're not wired for those things. That's why we have to come to him by faith, see. So what he says here is Jesus is the outshining. He is the light. Again, in Hebrews, let's go back to uh, chapter 1 here, the eternal word. In in chapter 1, verse 1, or verse um, 4, he says, In him was life. What What life? I mean, I have life. I just got up this morning and thought my heart was beating. I mean, we have life. What is he talking about? In him was life. I mean, it's a very religious sounding statement there, Jesus, there, John. He's talking about the life of God. He offers us the life of God. What does that mean? He goes into it in great detail in this gospel. But what it means is that we only have the capacity now to take on the life of God. How does that happen? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul said, it's not I, but Christ living in me is my only hope for glory. And I know that either there's one of two things happening in me at any given moment, and in you too, but I'll talk about me. Either the Spirit of God is on the throne of my heart as he's doing that conforming work, causing me to think more, act more, be more like Jesus, or my flesh. One or the other. Because the Bible tells us there's this battle that goes on inside. The flesh lusts after the things of the Spirit. The Spirit lusts after the flesh so that we can't do the things that we please is what it says. And so with this battle that goes on, it's not a battle that is waged that there's no winning because all that God says is simply yield to me as an instrument of righteousness. Just yield. And I'll do the work in you. I'll do the work through you. And you're probably not going to look a whole lot like your buddies. See, because what he wants to do is to, to infuse the life of God in us through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And he does that with us as we grow, as we move along. And I don't care if you're 8 or you're 80. There are things that God wants to do in your heart, in your life, to cause you to grow, to challenge you. Sometimes he has to pry our fingers off of areas of our life that are strongholds, that we have whole, we just, I'm going to hold, why do you have anything else? You can't have that. You guys are smiling. Because <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But you know, that's the conforming work. That's what he wants to do. We call that growth. Yielding to the work of the Spirit of God living in us. I mean, if you know Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, there is no more glorious way to live than to simply yield your life to him. To the fact that he went to that cross and died. Was, as I mentioned, was beaten, scourged, spit upon. I mean, think about it, guys. How many of you have experienced rejection in your life? How many of you have experienced someone rejecting you? There is, I, don't, I can't think of many things more painful than to know that I have been rejected by that person and there's nothing I can do. I, I've tried to heal that, tried to bridge that relationship, and they just don't want anything to do with me. Multiply that by what Jesus experienced on his way to the cross where even the Father rejected him. When he hung on that cross and he spoke those words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the first time in Jesus' life that he had ever been completely alone. As the Father somehow turned his back upon the Son to place our sins on him. How much love would our Father have for us that he would do that? Folks, I, I'm glad I'm not God. I would never think to do it that way. I would never think to create this whole thing and then have it go spinning out of control and I've got to fix it somehow. And the only way I can fix it is to take, have my son take the form of a man and to go and be tortured and killed and take up his life once more because he was the only sinless man so that I could save these other people sort of by proxy. I wouldn't do it that way. 
But I praise God every day that he has. We have, there's no way we can stand. There's none righteous. No, not one, the Bible tells us. Glorious truths. He says that that's the life. The life that he offers is the life of God. He says that life is the light of men. Now, three things about light. The, the light that Jesus brings is a light which puts chaos to flight. In other words, in Genesis there, there was, the earth was without form. It was void. And there was nothing. It was, it was chaos. There was no order. What's the first thing that God says in, in Genesis? He says, let there be light. And the earth was formed. He separated the heavens from the earth and so on. This order began to come and the chaos began to flee. We see in people's lives that there's chaos. My heart breaks. My heart breaks. And our hearts broke a week ago today. Lying in bed, my wife saw a news report about something going on in Las Vegas and we listened to the police scanner as things unfolded there. Horrid. Absolutely horrid. We live in an evil, evil time. And yet God is bigger than that. And when people simply come to the point of bowing the knee to Jesus, he deals with the evil. I'm not going to say I'm capable of what that guy did, but I know what I am capable of. And I praise God that he's taken hold of my life. Because none of us can stand on our own. We need him. We don't just want him. We need him. We need him to sustain every breath. We need to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and to let him be on the throne. I don't know how many times as a pastor over the years, somebody's come up and said something to me and I've simply wanted to say, is that your flesh or is that the Holy Spirit? Is Because it's one or the other. It's usually when I have a pretty good idea it's not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but the point is, as we yield to him, this thing called the body of Christ works so marvelously. Because he's called us together. Yes, we're a group, but we're a group of individuals with personal distinctives and tastes. How else could we come together under one cause, the cause of Christ, and actually get along? Not just get along, but actually like being with each other. That's pretty cool. It's wonderful. But it's his work. It's because his life is the light of men. It's his light. It's his life. We saw in Hebrews where the writer says he's the outshining. He is the radiance of the glory of the Father. And so often we get this idea again that, well, you know, I don't really understand the Father. Well, when Philip came, told Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have you been with me so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've been with me, you already have a pretty good idea of what God is like. And as we go through the study, my prayer, Calvary Chapel of Newburgh, is that each of us will see things about Jesus and see things about God as he reveals himself in a fresh way to us that will encourage our hearts, that will unify our hearts, that will heal our wounds. Because I know there are wounds in this room. My heart, again, goes out but that he will have his way with us as a church because he's having his way with us individually. 
This isn't just a fun Bible study that we get together on Sunday mornings and then we go and say, what's for lunch? I mean, yeah, I want lunch. I'm good. Do I look like I miss lunch? Point is, the point is, take it seriously. Take these things to heart. Let him have his way. I guarantee you will come out the other end of this study and we'll be a little bit more like Jesus. We'll be thinking a little bit more like him. We'll be acting a little bit more like him. We'll be getting along with each other in ways that we didn't think we would or could. And we'll be advancing the gospel together. Because after all, that redemptive work that we see from Genesis through Revelation that God is engaged in, he has commissioned each of us. He tells us we're, we are ambassadors. And what's an ambassador? He's a guy that's given up his rights to his own opinions. And boy, do I have a passel of them. But you know what? An ambassador of the United States doesn't get to go over and say, well, I think my personal opinion is my wife and I were talking this morning when he's talking to the leader of some country. No, he's there to carry out the desires and the wishes of his boss, of the leadership of that nation. Well, as ambassadors of Christ, he has commissioned us. We have work to do. He's commissioned us to be ambassadors for him. We can't afford our own opinions. We just need to know him well enough to know what his desires, what his wishes, what his will is, and then carry it out. Primarily, that's to simply love without condition. That's easy when people are lovable. (laughs) Not so much when they're not. But he calls us to that. Can I do that myself? Not on your life. Can I do that with him? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's called grace. So, we see that the light that he brings puts chaos to flight. The second thing is Jesus brings a revealing light. I remember when I was 19 years old, I got a wild hair and I moved from northwest of Los Angeles up in the San Gabriel Mountains. I moved to Tacoma, Washington and had zero money, lived on Skid Row. Yeah, I looked good on Skid Row too. Um, but I mean, I lived on Skid Row and it was for a period of time, and, and, and that was fine. I mean, I did, you know, didn't have anywhere else I could afford to live. I had this apartment I paid $75 a month for. And you can imagine what I got for 75 bucks. Well, when I turn on the light, the cockroaches would go and scatter. And it really gave me the creeps. But the light was a revealing light. And I'm not talking like, well, Jesus comes in and we're like cockroaches. Don't try to make that walk on all fours. (laughs) But what I am saying is that his light, when when you shine a a light in a dark room, you're going to see what's going on in that thing in a hurry. And his light shines in the hearts of men. And it says here, they didn't get it. They didn't comprehend it. Further in the chapter, he says, why? It's because their deeds are evil. And they like darkness more than they like light. It's a revealing light that he brings. And for Christians, he brings that revealing light. He searches our hearts. That's why, as I mentioned, it's so important to not concern yourself with what he's doing with somebody else's heart. Concern yourself with what he's doing in yours. Because as that light goes in, he will reveal the dark corners. He will reveal the hidden things. 
He will reveal the things that we're even in denial of. Because he's faithful. And it's not because he wants to beat us up. It's because he loves us. And he wants to deliver us from those things. And he wants us to live above the cut. Because he's called us to be set apart. He's called us to be separate from this world. To be in but not of. The third thing we see that Jesus' light brings is he brings a guiding light. Walking in darkness is a choice. It's a choice. And, and, and as children of the king, it's not his choice for us. He wants to guide our lives. He wants to illuminate our lives. He wants us to see him more clearly. Again, that's part of what John brings out in this glorious gospel. Let's go to verse 6. We'll tag a couple of things here. And uh, then we'll wrap up. See, I didn't think I'd make it to verse 18. Like I said, that's, that's a goal. <laughs> that's, that's, not, uh, that's not a tangible reality. <clears throat> verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness to that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name, through verse 12 there. So he says there was a man who was sent from God. He's talking about John the Baptist, of course. And, and he didn't, he, he's very clear. He says, this man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that he wasn't the light. And John himself said, no, 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 you got the wrong guy when they tried to sort of put him on a pedestal. He said, I'm not even worthy to unloose this guy's sandal when Jesus showed up on the scene there at the Jordan River. Interesting, in those days, in the first century, if a king was going to visit, if he was going to go out and he was going to visit another country, he would, they would send forerunners. So that that country would prepare, would be prepared for the visiting king. And John is the forerunner. And if you want to look at it in the most technical terms, John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. God had at this time been silent for 400 years. When Malachi stopped prophesying, God got really, really quiet. And over that 400 years, there had been a season of decay in Israel. There had been a revolt by this group called the Maccabees. And they later turned into this right on work of God, move of God called the Pharisees. Who were the villains by the time we get to the New Testament. Because as happens with every big move of God, men get their hands on it and decide they're going to fix it. And it doesn't need fixing. And pretty soon that thing cools off. And pretty soon, they're out there doing their own thing and putting God's name on it. Big area to guard our hearts on, too, because all through church history, God starts with a great new work, pours out his spirit. There's a revival, and it's a great movement of God. And then pretty soon, man starts getting his hands on it and working it and fixing it and trying to patch it together and make it do this and that. Pretty soon, you have what the equivalent of a church being a life-saving station. You have it becoming a social club. God forbid 
that we would simply become a social club and that we wouldn't lose the cutting edge of being people that bring the gospel to a dying, hurting, evil world. That's still God's heart. And when we've been a church for a while, it's when we need to guard ourselves. Because it's easy to start doing the same thing because that's just what we've always done. And because we've always done it, it must be right. What if God wants to do something different? The last words of a dying church, gang, is we've never done it that way before. Pray. I mentioned last week, pray. What does God want to do with this body? I, you know, I'm game. Whatever he wants to do, it's his church. I'm the under-shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And as we yield ourselves to him, he will use this little church. I mentioned last week, look at the church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation. He says, you have a little power. And they're the only church out of the seven that got a good report card. Why? Because they hadn't done what Ephesus did and left their first love. They haven't done what Smyrna and Pergamos and some of the others had done and, and started to kind of get off into their own deal. They were fresh and vibrant and alive. They hadn't done what the Laodicean church, the big church, the wealthy church. And I'm not saying that all big wealthy churches are wrong. There are a lot of really good things going on in big wealthy churches. We don't have to be a big wealthy church to have an impact for the gospel in our community. We simply have to be staying close to the head, staying close to the Lord. It says in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So he says the people in the world didn't know him. Reference there to the Gentiles. He came to them. They didn't have any concept. Who is this Jesus? Some Jewish guy? They didn't get it. And then it says he came to his own. The Jews. And they didn't receive him. Then he says, but as many as received him... In other words, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you're one of the as many, you're in. If you receive him. Then he gives you the right. It's a legal right. Binding. In his own blood. That's significant. To become a child of God. If you simply believe on his name. So it doesn't matter. He says in verse 13, you were born not of blood. It's not talking about physical birth. Nor of the will of the flesh. He's not talking about that at all. Or the will of man. This isn't something that man can invent. That's religion. That's the best man can do. But by the will of God. God's revealed will. To draw men and women unto himself. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, I'm going to do a marvelous work. I'm going to transform your life. If you've been a Christian for six minutes or 60 years, he's still in the business of transforming your life. Yield. Let him do the work that he has purposed from eternity past to do in you. He knows us by name. He numbers the hair on our heads. Not as many for me. But he numbers 
not just has them counted, but he numbers them. That's number 62. Okay, that's it for John. No, but seriously, he, he numbers the hairs on our head. He loves us. His thoughts of us are more abundant than the sand, grains of sand on the seashore. I don't think that's hyperbole. Hyperbole is overstating to make a point. I mean, if he's all-knowing, he knows how many grains of sand are on the seashore. He says, my thoughts are infinite towards you. I love you that much. I want to work in your life and your heart that much. I want to knit you together with your brothers and sisters in Christ that much. I want you to be encouraged and to to walk out of here and to, to run the place. Like I said, I look at church. This isn't Christianity. This is the, yeah, it is. Don't get me wrong. Don't leave. But, I mean, no, this is the huddle. You look at it like like a football team. If all the football team ever did was huddle, would they win any games? Would they move the ball down the field? Okay, guys, huddle up. Three hours later. Are we done huddling? Nope, not yet. No. We run the plays the rest of the week. This is where we come to be encouraged to hear from the Lord, to set aside a small amount of time in our lives so that we can be oriented for the rest of the time in our lives. This is the huddle. Now go run the plays. I'm gonna. We got nothing to lose. Don't get so comfortable in this world that you think you got stuff to lose. I'll tell you what. I have done crazy things for God, and I'm not here to ring my own bell. It's silly. It's done crazy things for God that the world will look and say, what on earth are you doing? I love Jesus. And that doesn't mean that I'm just a kook, but it means that if God has tapped me, I'm going to do it. It may not make sense to the natural man, but I don't live for the natural man. I live for the spiritual man, the man that God is conforming me to because we're all in this together. He's doing that conforming work in all of us. It's a glorious work he's doing. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. Let him have his way. Let him rule and reign on the throne of your heart. And as we go through this week, yield. Just simply yield. Spend time with him. And when you spend time with him in prayer, go beyond the shopping. I call it the shopping list. And it's a good. He says he wants us to bring our petitions. But go beyond that. Simply dwell with him in prayer. That's just simply sharing the relationship with him in the quietness of your own heart. Sometimes it's in the car. Sometimes it's laying in bed. Sometimes it's purposed out a certain block of time, whatever it is. Don't get under condemnation that you have to do, act, or be a certain way. But just spend time with him and see what he brings. I guarantee you, he'll work. He'll do that because that's what his will is. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this marvelous, this wonderful gospel. What a blessing it is, Lord, that you would take us and and take these rough, rusty pieces of rock and that you would slowly chip and grind and that you would polish us and that you would be conforming us to the image of Jesus. Lord, may you find vessels that are yielded towards that end in each of us. And Father, as we go through this week, just pray that you would cause us to be mindful of the things we've looked at this morning. If we're going through trials, Father, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged and that we could simply see you working in our midst because sometimes it just hurts.
We pray, Father, that you would be at the center of all we think, do, and say. We love you. We praise you now in Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. Amen.